going to talk about the Ten Commandments. And I'm going to have you read some of them with me because we've all been hearing these our whole lives. But I'll, I'll let that be the introduction um, and we can jump right in together. The Ten Commandments are basically uh, how God, where God shows us how to be his, uh, in a sense, what it looks like to belong to him. And so uh, if you have a blue bulletin, why don't we stand up out of respect for the reading of the word of God. And uh, I will prompt you where we can read them together. The longer ones, well, why don't we do the whole thing? I will uh, enunciate so you can follow my voice. Uh, but we'll do this together. This is Exodus chapter 20, verse 1 through 17. And God spoke all of these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the Lord, sorry, of the, the name of the Lord your God in vain. For the Lord your God will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. You or your son or your daughter, your male servant, or your female servant, or your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land, the Lord giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Let's pray together. Our God, uh, we come tonight unable to come any other way than the way we are, um, vulnerable to the stress of the middle of the semester, all of the things racing in our minds and weighing down our hearts, tests and capstone projects that might not feel prepared for, work responsibilities that press in, money that's tight, relationships that are strained, uh, and all of the confusions or doubts or questions or celebrations that we bring in our relationship with you. But, Father, we are where we are, for better or worse. We pray that you and your mercy would meet us where we are. You are a God, time and again, who has shown yourself one who comes to us, one who meets us where we are. 
Uh, And you do that in the Ten Commandments, too. We pray that we would learn tonight what your law is for. And Jesus, apply this, please, to the places my friends need it and the places I need it, even the places we don't know we need it. Uh, Revive us uh, with your life-giving word. We ask this in your name. Amen. Well, thanks for uh, being a sport and reading that with me. Just to remind you not to covet your neighbor's donkey. I just That was the main point of reading that is a, a little refresher on that. I was probably 22 years old when I first time in my life actually entertained the possibility that maybe I wasn't doing a good job of keeping the Ten Commandments. Um, which means for 22 years of my life, which is about through the junior year of college, um, I was under the impression that I was doing a pretty good job because I had this kind of vision of a scale. Like, if the scale is kind of balanced, you're kind of good. Um, If you don't break more than you keep, you're kind of okay. Uh, And there's kind of an acceptable group inside the Ten Commandments that everyone's kind of like, all right, uh, that one, maybe that applied in the past, but not anymore. And so I was a junior in college and still looked at myself as a guy who was a good guy. Um, who only break a few of those, but not any of the really, really bad ones. I'd never killed anybody. I'd never made a statue of Baal in my dorm room. And uh, I'd never, you know, cheated on someone's wife. But when I turned 22, God opened my eyes to who I really was, to who he really is, and to what the Ten Commandments really are. And I know you have similar, similar experiences because if there's one piece of God's story that we don't know what to do with. We don't know how it fits in his story. This is it. And if we don't know how the Ten Commandments fit in God's story, in his life from the beginning to end, Genesis, Revelation, if we don't know how it fits in his story, how are we ever going to know how it fits in our story? But we try. We try. I tried. You try. And here's some of the popular ways we try. Not really knowing how to make sense of them, not really knowing where they fit, We squeeze them into places. We do something with the Ten Commandments, everyone in the room, to either make them fit in our lives or to push them out of our lives. And here's a a short little list I jotted down. One, one, uh, One way we try to fit it in our life is the Ten Commandments, it's the marker of who's in and who's out. It's a political talking point for us. The Ten Commandments are the things that we need to go put up in schools and post offices and everywhere else. And it marks out who the good people are and who the bad people are, who the moral and immoral people are. That's one. How about this? The Ten Commandments are oppressive. They squelch freedom. They're a one-way ticket to a boring, bland life. If you live in line with these, say goodbye to anything exciting uh, or life-giving. Or how about this? This is a really popular one, even amongst uh, people who know theology. God, the God of the Old Testament was different than the God of the New Testament. He used to save people through works. So the, the Jews in the Old Testament, it's kind of a different God, a lot of threats, a lot of warnings. He seems fundamentally different than the God of the New Testament, but he saved people by obedience to these commandments. But now Jesus came, and now he saves people by grace. That's a, that's a way we try to make sense of this. It's not at all true, but it's a way we try to make sense of it. Or the Ten Commandments are a stairway to heaven. It's what I do to show God I'm serious, and this time I really mean it. This time I'm really going to clean up my life. I'm really going to pursue him. I'm going to be passionate for him. I'm going to be on fire for him. And it's the way I get back close to God is by obeying these things and trying harder to not keep breaking them. Or, this one hits close to home for all of us, 
Or we say things like, Jesus kept the law so that I don't have to keep the law. It sounds true. It's actually heresy. But it sounds very true. Uh, But when you remember that Jesus said the law is loving God and loving neighbor, do we really want to be in a place where we don't have to uh, love God and love neighbor? Or would it be better to say Jesus kept the law so that I can keep the law? Jesus kept the law so that I'm free to struggle keeping the law, free to keeping the law. But very subtle differences here. And it catches us up. And it snags us. And it produces consequences in our life. Maybe here's one of the best one, the last ones that I, I think is, uh, is something all of us can relate to. Do your best and God will do the rest. Which has actually been around the church for a long, long, long time. You read really old uh, uh, letters between people in the church. You'll find this stuff. Do your best, try your hardest, and God will fill up what's lacking. Um, it's kind of like you do your part, he does his. Um, try, to, try to do good on the ones you're able to do good on, and God will fill up uh, what's lacking. But it becomes a piecemeal. Ten Commandments are a buffet. I'll keep the ones I can keep, but there's some really unrealistic ones that he doesn't expect me to keep. How do you fumble the Ten Commandments? I've just told you probably all of these are ways I've fumbled them over the years, trying to squeeze and fit them into life, make sense of them. What do I do with these things? Do they still apply to a Christian? What do you do to fit them into your story? Do you see how they fit into God's story? John Newton's a pastor. He wrote the song we sang earlier, Amazing Grace. He said most of the mistakes, most of the confusion and the chaos in the lives of Christians is due to a misunderstanding about what the the purpose of the law is. I.e., these fumbles hurt. They have ripple effects in our lives. And he's recognizing that in his people. He's saying, if we don't understand the, the role between the law and the gospel of living in a way that's actually life, of loving, if we don't understand how that fits with a God of grace and mercy, then we have a lot of hurt in our life, a lot of confusion about where God is and who he is. And so maybe uh, that list of like six or seven things, that's what the law is not. That's not what the law was designed to do. So what was the law? What did God intend to do with the law? What's its point? Where does it fit in his life and in your life? It's the three points. We always have three points. The three points tonight brought to you by the letter P. Um, This is what the law is intended to do. This is what it's like. It has a gracious predecessor. The law doesn't come in a vacuum. It doesn't just drop out of the sky these timeless moral principles that are impersonal, uh, abstract, vaporous ideas like Hammurabi's Code or, or the Magna Carta. That's not what it is. It has a gracious predecessor, so the law never gets on the scene first. Grace does. That's the first point. <clears throat> the second point is it has a priestly purpose. It's not a generic purpose, how to be a nice person, how to be a good person, uh, how to keep God off your back. It has a priestly purpose. We'll spend a, um, a few minutes on this in a second, but it's, it's saying God intends for us, for the Ten Commandments to point the way to being a priest to the world. I'm not the only pastor in the room. Every single human being sitting in a chair in here is a pastor. You are a priest. It's your destiny. It's your calling. It's your identity. Tyrell read about it earlier. A holy nation, right? A royal priesthood. Once we were not a people, now you are a people. You are a priest. The Ten Commandments are about pointing the way and pulling us towards that vision of being a priest. And last, they point to Jesus because if if the Ten Commandments do one thing very well, 
they point us to Jesus because they point us to our inability to keep these things. And so uh, those, are the, those are the three things we'll look at uh, over the next few minutes. But the first one is this. When do the Ten Commandments appear uh, in the Bible? Exodus chapter 20. What were Exodus chapter 1 through 19 about? If you've got a Bible, you can flip through and see it. But Exodus chapters 1 through 19 was about grace, 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 grace. Mercy, deliverance, adoption, love, rescue. Bam, 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 law. You see the proportion. You are up to here in mercy, powerful mercy of a God who said, you will be my people and I will be your God before you ever ever hear him say anything about law, about obedience. It's grace. It's overwhelming. And so, if we dive into the Ten Commandments, you pick up your Bible, and we come in, we land into them at Exodus chapter 30, verse 2, what happens? We're not reading the Ten Commandments as God gave them to us anymore, are we? It's completely out of context, and they're just rules. They're just moral principles. They're impersonal. They're abstract. They're vague. That's not at all how God gave them to us. And that's why he tells Moses, Moses, tell the people, I am the Lord your God who has, past tense, delivered you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Moses, tell them I'm the one who rescued them before you ever tell them what I'm calling them to be calling them to do. This is a, a little bit like marriage vows. I actually brought some marriage vows uh, that I had the privilege of, of giving to a friend of mine this past December, but marriage vows make sense only in context of the relationship, of grace, if you want to use the metaphor for what I was just talking about. They don't make sense outside that context. Can you imagine what it would be like to keep marriage vows to a random stranger? If I said, hey, you, hey, you, See that girl on iMall or see that guy in Corbett. I want you to love them and cherish them, to keep only to them for richer, for poorer, for better, for worse, in hunger and in, in sickness and in health for all the days of your life. What would that relationship be like? You have no context of relationship with them, no love in that relationship. You don't know who they are. They don't know who you are, but you have rules to follow. You have an oath to obey. What would life be like inside of that relationship? We know what that would be like because a lot of us do that with God, right? But this is what God says. He says, when you, when you hear the Ten Commandments, see him standing on an altar with his people, Israel, with his people, the church. Because this is what I asked my friend in December. I said, Jordan, do you take Lauren to be your wedded wife? Will you be faithful to her? Will you cherish her, love her, honor her, forsaking everybody else and keeping only to her all the days of your life. And you know what my friend said? He wasn't burdened by that idea. He might have been nervous. He might have had sweaty palms. But he wasn't burdened and undone by what a, what a horrible thought. He was like, yes, I will. Because he knows Lauren. Lauren knows him. They love each other. They're committing to each other. So a committed relationship has, 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 has boundaries, has rules for the sake of the relationship. Not to earn a relationship. Was Jordan saying to Lauren that night on the altar? Lauren, if you love me, 
if you stay with me for sicker, for poor, for better, for worse, in good times and bad times, then I will marry you. Or was he saying, because I've married you, because of right now, I forever will never leave you. No matter what life brings, I, at least I, will be there with you. That's what God is saying. If you take it out of the context of him intimately knowing his people, intimately loving them, Israel, my beloved, son, daughter, my beloved, if you take the Ten Commandments out of God's relationship with you, out of grace getting on the scene before law ever got on the scene, it's like going up to a stranger and reading marriage vows out to him. Your life will be tyranny. You will feel trapped all of your life. It will be all work, no joy, no power, no love. And so God is, verse 1 is here for a reason. I am the Lord your God who took you out of the land of Egypt, out of slavery, out of death. I gave life to you. And he only talks about law post-rescue. Only after his people have been delivered. And so, do you see that God's law, which we could basically say his desire for how we live, his picture of what a human life is meant to be, what a, what a son or a daughter is meant to be. Do you see that against this horizon to horizon, just tapestry of mercy? Or do you see it out of context? Your life will show the evidence. Do you love God or is he a tyrant to you? Is his law crushing to you? Or is it like David says in Psalm 19, Psalm 119, all throughout the other Psalms, the law is like honey in the honeycomb. It's like water on a thirsty man's tongue. It gives life to the soul. David says, my heart has been set free to follow your law. People who love their spouses love their vows, right? That's what, that's what he's talking about here. Do you know this freedom? That's the first point. Law has a gracious predecessor. Grace gets there first before law ever does. Which means, if you want to come to God, you can't do what I did in college. (laughs) You can't do this. Here's ten steps to prove to God, I'm really serious this time. I'm really sorry for all the other screw-ups, but this time I mean it. That's not how you get to God. He says, come through the door of grace in Jesus Christ. That's the only way. Not this, not jumping through hoops, not taking vows to a God you don't know, uh, but crying out uh, that he will make himself known to you. Second point flows directly out of this. The second point is the law has a priestly purpose because, and here's where all of the past sermons come together. God's story is coherent. The law has a priestly purpose. What was God's purpose for Adam and Eve? You remember? That they would be priests to the world, ministers, servants to the world, spreading his reflection all around the globe that the place would be filled with the aroma of God. That was his goal for them. And I I said then, God doesn't give up on his dreams. He doesn't start writing plan B's because he can't get his will accomplished. He gets his way. And he didn't give up. And And so Israel here and you and me are still called to be what Tyrell read earlier, a royal nation a holy nation, a royal priesthood, a people for his own possession. Why? So that the Gentiles or those who don't know God, those outside of the church, will see you and say, I have no idea what's so attractive about that person. But if it has anything to do with their God, I will listen. I will go. 
because I don't have that and I want that. That's what Tyrell read earlier. That's the priestly purpose in this. If you have a Bible or a little digital phone, flip back a chapter, or you don't even have to flip back a page. Sorry, flip back a, um, a, few, a few verses in chapter 19, verse 4 through 6. This is what I mean when I'm saying these things. This is what God says right before the Ten Commandments come. He says this uh, to Moses. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you up on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, remember, grace got there first. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant or my vows, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Sound familiar? He never gave up on the dream. He gets his way. And you're a part of God getting his way if you're in Jesus. He says, Moses, these are the words that you'll, you should speak to the people of Israel before you ever talk to them about the law. And so here's the big deal. And this is really, really big. Because this will determine whether your life as a Christian is boring and aimless or has a, has a trajectory and purpose and coherence to it. God didn't just save you from something. The gospel is not just God saved you from the guilt and death and oppression of your sin. That's, a, that's half. That is good news. But that alone isn't all of the good news. He saved you from and he saves you for. For what? This. To be normal again. To be his again. To be alive again. To love again. That's what he saved us for. Jesus says, I didn't come to bring he says, I didn't come just to bring you life, but life abundant. I saved you for something. And so on day one, after he changes our hearts, it's like, here's a to-do list. Not to earn anything, but it's like, let's get busy. We get to start pursuing life, leaning into love, leaning into priestliness. That's what he's saying here. So I've saved you from something, and I've saved you for something. Consider where Israel just was. I won't, I won't regale you with everything we talked about the past few weeks, but 400 years, take pretty much every of the Ten Commandments and reverse them. That's what, is, that's what Egypt was like. Welcome to Egypt. Rape, murder, slander, dishonest scales, fraud, Ponzi schemes, <clears throat> child sacrifice, false testimony in courts, people who don't have power getting steamrolled by the people who do. That's what Egypt was like. That's what every nation was like. And God says, I'm calling you to be my people in a new place. And guess what? You're not going to look like they did. Because that is not what I made human beings to do. That is not what my people are for. And so he begins to kind of to point the way to what life looks like, to what he looks like. So how do we know what the Ten Commandments... How do we know what it means to be like God, to be holy? Do we just... Does God just say, be holy... Figure it out on your own. I'm sure you'll come up with something good. Does he say, love your neighbor and love me, and whatever love means to you, do that? Does he leave, it, does he leave the ball in our court to define what love is? We were people who love to do that. Our culture loves to say what love is. We don't get to say what love is. God says, I am love. And the one who is love says what love is. The Ten Commandments are a, a kind of a breakdown of what, what it means to love God and what it looks like to love your roommates, your girlfriend, your boyfriend, your mom, your dad, your enemy. This is what it looks like. 
God paints the picture. He doesn't hand us a paintbrush and say, figure it out. He says. So, does that seem oppressive to you or tyrannical to you that God would insist he defines what love is or what life is? Does it seem maybe the better future will come if the paintbrush gets to say in my hand and I get to define what life is or I get to define what love looks like or who I love or whatever else? Is that the pathway of life? Here's an illustration that, that kind of draws out uh, whether or not it is a pathway of life or death. I had uh, uh, one of my, Anna's and my best friends in college, they took a river trip one spring break. They had seven days to get from Athens, Georgia, which is our college town, to the Atlantic Ocean. There's a river called the Broad River that um, it's like 100 miles, 130 miles or something like that, and goes down there. So they were going to have to book it like a lot of miles a day. Um, to get down there, I don't do math. Uh, <clears throat> And uh, the first few days were great. Got like half their distance, but it started to like deluge rain for like two days straight. And so they were sidelined, just camping on the banks, and had to wait until uh, the, water, uh, the, the rain stopped to get back on the river. Here's the problem. The section of the river they were in, the water the, from the rain had risen above the banks. They didn't know where the river went anymore because it was a floodplain. You look right, there's water. You look left, there's water. Behind you, water. In front of you, water. Where's the river go? No more banks. You could interpret that situation two ways. If the riverbanks were tyrannical, oppressive boundaries, constraining you and keeping you from life outside the banks, then you would interpret that situation as, this is awesome, no more boundaries. Every direction is an option. We can kind of make our own way and, and find our way. But if the riverbanks actually delivered you to the thing you most wanted to get to, which for my friends was to see the Atlantic Ocean crashing on the shoreline, that was their goal. The riverbanks got them to where they most wanted to be. And once those banks disappeared, they have no idea where to go. And Anna had to come pick them up, and they spent the rest of spring break at her house <clears throat> because they, they couldn't get there anymore. They couldn't tell where the river went. Is that freedom when you have options in every direction and you have no, which, nowhere, no clue where to go? Or is that actually a kind of death? Were the riverbanks, though they kept you in a particular place, was that actual, actually bringing you, taking you, pointing you to the place you wanted to be? That's what the law of God is like. The question is, do you see options, alternative ways of living as life? And if you do, are you not the person looking at water in every direction saying, yes, finally I'm free? Or, like David in the Psalms, are you the one who looks at the river and says, I love the riverbanks because I get to where I'm going. I know the way to go. I know what love looks like. I know what loving God looks like. I know what God looks like because he is these things. Do you love it for those reasons? The riverbanks are good. They keep us going uh, where we should go. It directs us to our destination. So a uh, uh, last question before we finish and the last point is this. What's the destination? But for my friends, it was the Atlantic Ocean. They wanted to see the waves crash on the beach at the Atlantic Ocean. They wanted to tell their friends, I took a boat from Athens to the ocean. What's the destination? 
for these commandments? Where are they pointing us? Where are they directing us? Where's the current flowing? Here's where it's flowing. This is what the Ten Commandments are like. Here's a two-minute version of what the Ten Commandments are. The first commandment, it's not just don't have any other gods before me. It's so much more than that. It is live in such a way that I am as beautiful as I am, broadcasted to everybody. Treasure me, cherish me, cling to me, love me, because I'm worthy of every ounce of it. That's why he says don't have any other gods before me. He says... He doesn't just say, don't make false images. He says, look, you are the image of God. And look to the perfect image of God that I'm sending. Don't settle for diddly little idols that can't save you because they're not alive. Look to me. That's what the second commandment's about. The third commandment, it's not about not cussing. It's about living in such a way that God's reputation doesn't get dragged through the mud. That's all of life. That's how we are as an employer, a roommate, a tenant, a classmate, a student, a a kid, everything. Live in such a way that God's reputation is furthered. Have you ever lived in such a way for a boss that he looked better? That's what the third commandment's about. The fourth commandment, a Sabbath. He's saying, I am the God who has made everything and provides everything. You can afford a day off because I don't get a day off. In a sense, I don't slumber, I don't sleep, so you can sleep, and you can slumber, and you can rest, and you can inhale, even though you hadn't done it for 400 years under Pharaoh. Never a day off. I'm the God who gives you a day off because I care about your weariness. That's what the commandment is about. Honor your father and mother. Don't just pay lip service to them. Bless them, honor them, use who you are, what you have to further them. I know that sounds like death to a lot of us, and there's wisdom in how to apply this given your background. But the point is, God is calling us to submit and bless. And he's not just saying don't murder. He's saying pursue the life and the well-being of every human being around you because they bear my image. Don't slander them. Don't gossip them because that's killing them. Pursue health. Pursue thriving. Make your neighborhood better. Care about the widow. Care about the orphan. That's the commandment. Do not murder. Don't do anything to drain life from anybody or yourself. That's what that commandment's about. Don't commit adultery. He's not just talking about what you do with your wife. It's not like we're we're off the hook or this doesn't apply to us until we get married. He's saying, live with your body. Live with sex in such a way that you show the world, I'm a God who keeps my promises. I don't leave when the communion's over. I stick around. I don't run away from people. So he's saying live in such a way that the world sees that when they see how you carry your body, how you use your body, how you use your relationships. Don't steal. He's saying I'm the God who gives everything. And it's not just don't steal. It's, it's give. <laughs> give. Work hard so you have money to give away. Think about other people when you're going on conferences. Think about other people when they need gas money. Use your resources to give away. Don't be so self-focused that we hoard and bring into us. That's what the commandment's about. Don't lie. Be a truth teller. In a a world full of truth twisters, of people flatterers, where we're really nice and we say the right things to get people to do what we want, be a truth teller. Be honest about how hard your week has been. Be honest about not having a clue what to do with your boyfriend or girlfriend at this stage in your relationship. Be a truth teller. 
God says people will be blessed. Life will come back into the picture when you tell the truth. Don't manipulate. Don't twist. Don't spin. And when he says don't covet, it's going back to the first commandment. I am the Lord your God. Do you, has your neighbor's wife, has, has your roommate's boyfriend or girlfriend, has your roommate's internship that they got, has their intelligence become more precious to you than me who gives all of those things? Don't covet. That's what that's about. Here's the hard part that pushes us to the next point. Do you see that the law isn't just this external stuff? The reason I was 22 years old before I ever felt broken, penetrated, exposed by the law is because I thought it was just about if you sleep with someone's husband or wife or not, or if you pull the trigger and kill someone or not. But the law is aimed at your heart, inside, deep places, your desires, your thoughts, your motivations. That's what it's aimed at, pointing the way of life. And just like when the sun comes up, the sun is light. Just like when that light comes up, it exposes dark places. So when the law comes and shines on our life, it exposes the places we are not this way. The ways I, the ways I don't give away, the ways I take life, the ways I covet everything of my neighbors. And so you can't hear me tonight and say, wow, this law is cool. I want to start doing all of that. You get to say that if you're a Christian. You get to say that. You're free to leap into the wide open spaces of obeying Jesus. You're free. However, you have to hear more than that. The law also exposes all the places. It it doesn't just show us who God is. It shows us who you really are. It shows me who I really am. Not just when I was 22 every day. I'm not a man who loves well. Not God, not my neighbor. That's what makes me... Uh, in and of myself, that's what makes me guilty. Not breaking some arbitrary rules like I went 26 and a 25, but that I don't love the God I was made to love. I don't love you. That's what Jesus came to repair. So the law points away from itself, ultimately, to the one who kept it. I said the one who kept it. Not the external commandments like Jesus never slept with another person's wife, but Jesus never used his eyes to rape another woman. Jesus never, when he's at the woman at the well, he didn't see her as an opportunity to have a secret hookup. Like every other guy looked at that woman and saw her through the lens of lust and greed and self-centeredness. Jesus looked at her well, and he loved her. Jesus didn't take life. He gave it every time it was asked of him. He's the one who keeps the law, the one who keeps the law. The Bible makes a big point about this. No one is righteous, no, not one. The rich young ruler says, yes, I am, yes, I am. I've obeyed them all since I was a boy. Jesus says, go, sell everything you have. And the rich young ruler knows immediately, I have not kept any of the commandments ever. I love money, not God. I steal, I don't give. And he goes home sad. And so the law diagnoses as well. Here's where we find ourselves. Imagine you're a leaf. And you're not just any leaf. You're a withered, crunchy leaf. Like in fall, when they've just fallen off the trees and the edges start to get crunchy. What good is a biology textbook for you if you're a leaf that's fallen off the tree and is starting to get crunchy and is dying? 
How helpful is it going to be to you if someone comes up and says, Hey, let me read to you about photosynthesis. This is how leaves thrive. This is how leaves live and metabolize energy. This is what chlorophylls are. This is what metabolism is. This is what photosynthesis is. This is how you'll come alive. Useless, right? Well, the metaphor is a little interesting anyway because you're a leaf listening to a person reading a book. But (laughs) roll with it. Um, You're the leaf. It's useless to you. Look, apart from that leaf being grafted back into that tree, it has no hope of life. And that book is powerless. Powerless. It can point to life. It can point to nourishment all at once. Nothing happens except that leaf begins to know more and more, oh my goodness, I really need that tree. I am hopeless without it. This is what the law does. We are dead people. Dead. Not sick. Dead. We are leaves disconnected from the tree. The gospel is this. God is a gardener who picks up leaves and sticks them back in the tree. He comes. He chases. He puts back in. Jesus says, I am the true vine. You're the branch. You're the leaf. Whoever abides in me, who's grafted into me, bears much fruit. He says, if anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away like a branch and withers. The branches are gathered, they're thrown into the fire, they're burned. But if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. And then he says this, listen for, listen for law on the far side of grace. Listen for that biology textbook after the leaf is back in the tree. When you're wondering, what do I do now? If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. I.e., how do you abide in my love if you keep my commandments, just as I've kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. These things I've spoken to you that my joy may be in you. Hear that? Joy. Not bore dull, boring, dull life, lifelessness. My joy may be in you. And that your joy may be full, not stingy, not barely, not empty, full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. You are my friends if you do what I command. So, apart from being connected to Jesus Christ, the Ten Commandments kill you. Apart from being united to Jesus, you can look at the law all you want. You can look at how it points to life, but it cannot make you come alive. Because biology textbooks can't make a leaf process sunlight, can't bring a leaf back to life, but a tree can. Jesus says, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He doesn't say go to the law. He says, come to me. But here's the deal. If you know Jesus, this is how you know you know Jesus for real. The law is beautiful to you. You sing with David, I love the law because it shows me my God who has redeemed me. I'm not doing this to earn anything. I've been grafted in and I get to soak up the sun. I get to grow. I get to be put back together. That's what the Christian says. Those who are not united to Jesus, those who aren't in Jesus, if you, if you don't know him, you're the person who's taken vows to a stranger. It's all work, 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 tyranny, slavery, oppression. 
So put down the biology book. Come to the gardener who calls you and says, I will graft you into me. And then you get, get to, you get to run through wide open spaces the way you were made to. Because what's the law? Loving God, loving neighbor. That is life. And you get to be alive again in Jesus. That's how the law fits with Jesus. Here's the last little metaphor to kind of bring this uh, home to you. Sinclair Ferguson, a great guy with a Scottish accent, which means he's awesome. He says this. He says, imagine it this way. This is how the gospel and the law fit together. Think of it like like an old steam train. There's that big, heavy engine. But he says something has to power that engine and push it forward, right? There has to be coal. There has to be fire. There has to be energy. And he said, Jesus' love for you, his work in your life, the spirit of Jesus, is that energy. It is the fuel that pushes you forward. Okay? That is what changes you. But if there are no tracks for this train, where does it go? If there are no riverbanks, where does it go? Who knows? Choose your own adventure. Don't end up where you expected to end up. So he says the law is the train tracks upon which the gospel goes, guaranteeing you get to the intended destination. Because I said God gets his way with his people. And you will end up where he intends you to end up. But he calls you and he calls me to continue down this track, to see it as the path of life. And when we fall off the tracks and the train wrecks happen, to look back to the one who can do something with us, who can put us back on the tracks, who can bring us back to life. Don't look to the textbook to bring you back to life. Call out to the gardener. If you've been a Christian a day, if you're not a Christian, if you've been a Christian 10 years, Jesus is the one God calls you to. Let's pray that he would help us to believe this. Jesus, you are the one who has fulfilled the law. You are the one human being who loved God and loved your neighbor, us, perfectly. And so if we are ever to have a record of success with the law,